Hi, this is Mandy Griffin. And I'm Katie Swalwell. And welcome to Our Dirty Laundry. Stories of white ladies making a mess of things. And how we need to clean up our act. Hey guys, um, so I am recording another pre-episode uh, blurb, and it seems like these are never great reasons um, that we come on here to do this, and I know I have to say something, because otherwise you'll all be sitting there thinking, what are we listening to? Um, but again, I... I don't know what to say. I don't know that there's anything that we can say anymore. Um, As we learned today about the murder of 13-year-old Adam Toledo by Chicago police on March 29th, there's there's nothing adequate um, except to stand in solidarity with all of those affected by police violence and to unequivocally state that the policing system in this country is not broken. It is working how it was intended to work and it is a rotten system. Um, I also read today that the Kenosha officer that shot Jacob Blake was not being charged with anything because he acted within what he was allowed to do. And if that doesn't say it all, I just don't know what else does. It is an admission that this is the job of the police. Um, We are watching the trial of Derek Chauvin, which is a murder trial for a murder that we all witnessed. And really, The trial is just about whether or not we as Americans will allow the police to murder our citizens. And I am fearful of that answer because I feel like we already know it. And I am beyond saddened to bring attention to it again, Um, but I think we have to. So everybody, I hope that um, you are taking care of yourselves and that we are supporting each other and that we keep trying to do whatever it is that we can. We have a conversation today with Brie Carlson, who has been fighting for racial justice for years and years and years, and we hope that we can learn something from her and bring it to the fights that we need to have today. So thank you again for listening. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our Dirty Laundry Podcast. As Mandy says, you clicked it. You know why you're here. You want to learn (laughs) about how white women are shitty and how we can do better. And today we are super excited. We, I feel like we've had a string of incredible guests, Mandy, the yes. last few days. We're just yeah. super, super fortunate. But with us today is Brie Carlson, who is the Deputy Director of People's Action. We have a million questions for her about People's Action and about organizing. Um, she was recommended to us by a mutual friend who has been a longtime 
um, racial justice organizer and knew Brie through that, who herself, um, I think the appropriate term is for fucking ever, a racial justice organizer, <laughs> community organizer, um, and and really just someone who has been involved in electoral organizing, which is something else we want to ask you about since we've really been focusing on voting rights um, for the this kind of season of episodes. Um, but one of the things that we've, well, first, welcome. I see I have so many questions. I just want to jump, right right jump right in. We're just going to jump right in. Just welcome. Let's do it. Let's actually do it. We're so happy to have you. Bree, anything else you want to say about maybe even why, when we emailed you and said, do you want to come onto this podcast, why did you say yes? <laughs> Bad judgment? <laughs> <laughs> because I actually, I think it's kind of amazing that you're doing, uh, I, I, okay, white women are not shitty individually. Collectively, (laughs) collectively, I can't argue strongly against that label, but I think it's really interesting to examine. Uh, You know, there's, I don't think anybody's just born shitty and I don't think that white women Mm -hmm. are shitty, but I do think there's like some ways that racism and sexism come together to really support some dumb behavior. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Instead of it almost right. Mm -hmm. Like make it make sense for people to do. Um, I think like one of the pieces, I definitely, we want to hear a lot more about your electoral work for sure, especially because right now there's so much happening in that world. Um, and we want listeners, we, we keep getting more and more feedback from listeners about how they're being inspired to take action in their communities and they're feeling more confident and like fired up and like, okay, I've got to do something. So really just whatever kind of calls to action you have for people that I, I think where I want to start, Mandy, I'm just going to jump in. Yeah, and- go ahead. Throughout the first question, mm-hmm. but I something that we've learned as we've gone through the, the history of the women's suffrage movement in the United States was that one of those you know bad moves as a collective white women made was they made their activism about one issue only, and it ended up only involving the leadership of one demographic of people. And one of the reasons we were so grateful that you were willing to talk to us is because our understanding of people's action is that it's the opposite of that. And that your organizing has been very cross issue, cross identity, like coalition building. So let's just start there. Like if that is one of the lessons, like don't do that single issue, you know, (laughs) like, can you just speak to that? And, And are we right to take that lesson away? I don't think I, I get why you take that lesson away, but I would say that it's a little bit more complicated than that. So yeah, people's action is multiracial, multigenerational, multigeography. I mean, as you know, like we're in, we're in Des Moines and we're in Brooklyn. So all of the places and people have different identities, different priority issues, different ways of doing organizing. And I think it's powerful. That said, one of the reasons that single issue and single identity organizing does still happen, and I would argue needs to happen, is if you have an organization like People's Action with so many different competing interests, needs, and um, and approaches, what happens is, unless you are just ruthlessly policing it, is that you default to the issues white people care about, mm-hmm. the issues that white educated people care about, the, the issues that white urban people care about. So it pulls further mm-hmm. and further away. So it, it's like the Noah's Ark approach. 
you want to get two of everybody. Well, sure. But if we're talking about how you organize people together to change power relations, you actually have to think about the power people have within those kinds of conglomerations that we create. So, you know, I work for a multi-issue, multi-identity organization. I think it's powerful, but I think it's it's most powerful when it's built out of people coming from organized, powerful groups around the central identity or the central priority that they represent in the larger coalition. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes a lot of sense. Oh, but, gosh, no, yeah. totally. Yeah. It totally does. I, I'm thinking... like of all the pitfalls with organizing that can happen. And so when you're talking about how the default can be white, urban, white, educated, white, wealthier people, that it becomes their issues that, that get the attention. What are ways in your long history of organizing in your work with people's action? What are, what are ways you found that help mitigate against Mm -hmm. that? Like what helps keep that from happening? That's a perfect way to put it because there's not there's not getting it right. That's not a thing. It's getting it better. <laughs> mm-hmm. I would say that if I if I were talking if I were telling the story and I love to tell the story, um, that's how I I teach history is to tell the story, which mm-hmm. I find often means I've created a whole bunch of it all by myself, just telling the story too many times. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> I would say what went wrong in terms of women's suffrage wasn't because it was single issue; it was because it was racist. It was because choices, I mean, it it really was, it was about power and choices were made and deals were cut. And the the idea was white women stand a better chance of securing the vote if they are divorced from black civil rights efforts of any kind. And feminism didn't stop being a white, it's not fair because there is feminism in every community, every racial community. The feminism that we think of as the women's movement and the feminist movement has been entirely defined by white people because we're a racist country mm-hmm. that supports the idea that white people are not just better, but also the default. So mm-hmm. you don't need anybody else for a women's movement, but white people. And, yeah. and the assumption is anything that happens that's good for white women will just, you know, magically Trickle be good down. for everybody else, too, <laughs> which we know is so not true. Not at all true. Not at all true. So how do you pull in then those other voices, like in the work that you're doing? Is it just a matter of making sure that those that people are present? Um, And even if they're present, how are they getting heard? Yeah, Yeah. we actually don't try, uh, you know, I hope nobody listens to this and disagrees, but I don't believe we're an organization that tries to be Noah's Ark. What we Mm -hmm. try to do is have the people that need to be there to win. So I came to people's action originally. So it's been, I'm about to hit my nine year anniversary, which is the longest relationship of any kind that I've ever had. (laughs) So obviously it's going well. Um, When I came as the director of the structural racism program, it it literally looked like this. I had done all of my organizing work and a lot of anti-racism work that was with organizations that were explicitly focused on racial justice and were almost without exception, led by and primarily made up of people of color. So I didn't have a lot of experience with other kinds of organizing. And I just got Mm. tired, Um, you know, like real tired, (laughs) post diving tired. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I just everything that we were doing was right in the sense that we weren't, you know, like I didn't have a, a crisis of thinking what we said all along was wrong. It just wasn't working. And I honestly knew that the work I was doing at the time, we could have done 10 times, uh, 10 times the scale for another 10 years. And we would win discrete victories for people of color. And we would never put a dent in racism. 
because at the end mm. of the day, it, it it is single issue work is awesome. The movement for black lives is one of the most inspirational things I see happening in the world. And it mm-hmm. is for black people mm-hmm. led by black people. That's right. And racism only exists because it's a structural way of making sure that we can't really challenge for power. So when I step back and go, the overwhelming majority of poor people in our country, for instance, are white. It's real easy to remember that for all the ways that racism is devastating, horrific, um, life ending for people of color, that that's not why it exists. We don't have racism in our country because a lot of people think it's fun to be mean to people of color. We have it because it protects the power and wealth of a very small minority of white people. So Mm -hmm. breaking it requires not just having people included for that sake, but for understanding that like ending racism in the United States is very tied up with capitalism. It's very tied up with an arrangement of power that's meant to keep people separated. And then we do other things. We use forced labor. We do all kinds of other things. They're like extra saucy benefits for for people in power. But the bottom line is they need to make sure that our self-interest isn't aligned enough so that the majority of the country says, yeah, fuck you, we're done with this. Mm -hmm. And so I'm a people's action and we kind of organize with the philosophy that we need we need a big coalition that is multiracial, but it's not like just representation. It's about power. So we, mm-hmm. we at the same time do something, which is, I think, what sometimes gets missed in these big coalitions, which is we're really explicit about race. Mm-hmm. We don't say, oh, well, it's, it's divisive. We won't talk about it. We put it right in the middle and we, and we get right into it and we get into it over and over. And not just in a way that says, oh, white people you're part of this thing called racism. So you're bad and you should just be quiet. No, it's like, you're part of this thing called racism, which means you get some privilege. But let me tell you, this entire economic arrangement that's destroying your life could not exist without racism. And if you want to do something about it, you should do it because it's what you and your family need to. Yeah. Yeah. I think we were talking about that a little bit before we started recording, Brie, that one of my main things I keep coming up against is it seems like there's so much to do, but yet no matter what we do, we're not making a big enough dent. It's not making big enough changes. And so then it gets so frustrating. And so then the question is how, because it seems like from what you're saying, what I'm getting is we just need more power, which means we need more people. So how do we get more people to realize it. Like, how do we push this realization that this has got to happen, that none of our lives are going to be better until they all get better? And, you know, I think that that's probably the question you deal with every day. But do you have an answer for us? (laughs) And I'll add to that question, like the terms keep shifting, too. So I'm thinking about the gains that have been made. I come from the field of education. I am currently in Iowa where one of these bills has is live in the legislature to not be able to teach about, quote, divisive concepts, which is racism and sexism, right? So it's almost like, okay, where we actually have made a dent makes it a target for legislation like that. Or let's take Georgia, which links us to the electoral issues. Like, okay, we're going to learn how to use this system and build people power and we're going to do it and we're going to turn out and like, boom, now you're a target for very direct dismantling. So how, yeah, like just to add add another layer to Mandy's question, you know, <laughs> solve it all for us, Brie. Give us all the answers. <laughs> well, I have an answer. It just, it won't please you. <laughs> you just don't stop. There is yeah. the idea, I, I think sometimes this, the whole, like there's a very deep narrative that, that we all sort of 
live with. It's in the ether about things like, you know, racism is about mean people doing bad things. And, and if they don't mean it, then it's not racist. And if they aren't bad, then it's not racist. And with sexism, like sexism is only the most egregious, horrific violence done to women. It's not the everyday demeaning of women. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. we, we create like a really narrow place where those things live. And then everything else is just the way things are that there's a thousand problems with that. There are probably a million problems with that. But the one I'm I'm thinking of now is it gives you the impression that we're not fighting against something that like, if we make a gain, everybody will go, great. That's so much nicer. Let's keep it that way. It's there are opposing forces and we just got, we got pushed back. But I think it's kind of exciting to remember that the reason that we have a wave of voter suppression laws being introduced across the country is because we just had the most historic amazing election. Mm -hmm. And it's a reaction to that. Every time Mm -hmm. we win, we should just expect that there will be pushback. We're fighting for power and people will kill for that. Literally. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's the exhausting part of it. (laughs) It I will say one other thing that's helpful though. I think when for Anybody who's like if for a white person fighting for racial justice, I would say this, that it is no less exhausting, obviously, for people of color. I know you know that. But the reason Mm -hmm. it doesn't push us out as often is it doesn't feel like we have a choice. Right. So if you can figure Mm -hmm. out how to always be fighting from your own needs and your own self-interest, it people will say that's selfish. It's not. It helps you to keep perspective about whether or not you can walk away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We all have real bad days. Sometimes they're bad years, <laughs> but, but, you know, I keep coming back because I, I don't want my husband killed. So I can't stop caring about whether the police are killing black men. And I kind of don't want to die either. So I can't stop being concerned about the racial disparities and how the vaccine is being rolled out. Like, yeah. So I know why, but I don't think that I, I sometimes think because of the way we frame it as if it's a much simpler problem white people Mm -hmm. don't realize how much their lives depend on it. I don't think the poor white people who live in Long Beach understand that their vaccine access is fucked because of racism. Yeah. And it's not because people are saying they're white and that's, and so we hate them. No, it's because all of the policies and structures that make it. So the rollout is so, so messed up on race Mm -hmm. are also going to hurt them. If they are poor, they're in the neighborhood I live in. We haven't, we're, struggling to figure out where we could possibly get a vaccine. Yeah. 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 I think that is, um, you know, something that we have really talked about, like all victories are partial and under attack like that. And that can feel really daunting and heartbreaking and tragic, but it's just like, well, that is just how it is. And that's like further investment to keep going and to think about future generations and past generations that sacrifice so much to make, easier for us in some ways. So I I just think like keeping that perspective and seeing yourself as part of a much longer chain in the human families is really important too. I wonder what gives you hope and if you feel like you need it, I know that's probably a weird question, but you, you know, you, you had like a big smile on your face when you talked about this last historic election. And I wonder like when you have, when there are moments of victory, whether it's a campaign that you're helping organize that like gets what you wanted, even then it's like a celebration, but probably like, and brace for backlash. Like, it, do you feel like you need hope or what gives you hope? I don't know. Oh, I, I, yes, I need hope yeah. to survive. 
I, I'm pretty good at constructing hope. I'm really enjoying not having to do that right now. I mean, <laughs> I have a big side. I, I am still a little bit amazed myself at the extent to which I celebrate the election of Joe Biden. So to give you context, <laughs> I can't stand Joe Biden. Yeah. I mean, I think he is, he has most of his political life has been the embodiment of the kind of Democrat who I actually blame more than any Republican for mm-hmm. where we're at right now. Mm-hmm. So we started with, so we're an organization of state and local, a national organization of state and local organizations. And uh, we've got 40 groups and 30 states. And we started, I should probably have a little caveat here, which is that I wasn't awesome with time before the pandemic. And now I'm really not great with time. So I'm going to say it was two or three years ago, I think, or maybe two, maybe, yeah, something in that range with this idea that we should run a movement candidate for president. That was a little bit silly. Like we're a big, powerful organization, but that is no small feat. But what it, what it started was a conversation that led to us moving the most democratic endorsement process that I've ever seen a community or a national organization do. And we had presidential forums where we had, you remember the 50,000 Democrats who were running mm-hmm. <laughs> in the primaries. Mm-hmm. So we had these, um, these presidential forums with some amazing candidates. I, you know, I don't know, Katie, if you were able to go to the one in Iowa, but it was, I mean, I was in tears. It was yeah. amazing. We had our yeah. members, like, you know, CCI members on the stage asking questions of Elizabeth Warren, of uh, Pete Buttigieg. It was powerful. And then we endorsed... Uh, Sanders, which was not easy. And was it wasn't something the national staff decided. It was decided by our organizations across the country. And we built a relationship with that campaign. So then we lose. <laughs> and there's the coronavirus. Last year could not have been more, couldn't have been more awful. Mm-hmm. And the combination of losing that primary after whatever number of years of work went into getting to that point, and then finding out that we couldn't go be with people. I mean, organizing is a face-to-face, you know, both art and science. Mm-hmm. Everything is about that. So all of the plans that we made in February ended in March. We were grounded um, and struggling just to figure out how to teach, you know, Jane Adams Senior Caucus how to use, how the seniors were going to use Zoom, you know, mm-hmm. to be able to talk to it. It just, it was, it was impossible odds. And what we did is we turned it around and we built a distributed volunteer program, had tens of thousands of volunteers doing deep canvas conversations in places where Trump won, Mm -hmm. uh, primarily talking to rural white people about why Mm -hmm. they needed to show up to vote and why they needed to vote for Biden. And it was not at all about liking Biden. It was about what kind of world you want to build. Mm -hmm. And so when we won, we transformed this administration before it started. So Mm -hmm. I'm smiling about the election because if we had elected the Joe Biden that started in this primary process, Mm -hmm. I would have nothing to smile about. I would have, I would be praying for him to trip and fall and be gone. <laughs> Instead, he's going to be one of the most progressive presidents in the history of this country. That's a win. And so it's not like when I, yes, we're always going to have the other side push back, but we won so big. It's not just that we've elected Biden. I mean, he was running against Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Frankly, it's a little scary that we didn't win by more. Right. It's that we elected him with so much power that he is moving one of the most progressive agendas that's ever happened in the history of our country. So we, we won it pretty well, but we secured it. It wasn't like we had a narrow victory and just barely got somebody in who we think is so-so. We put somebody who is worse than so-so in, and he has to answer to the progressive agenda. And we're seeing the results. 
And speaking of that, though, like the the Democrats who have fucked us over more than other people, like that's that's my concern with this agenda. There are a lot Mm -hmm. of things in his agenda that I'm happy about, but I'm thinking specifically of Senator Manchin and of (laughs) Kristen Sinema and like Mm -hmm. these people are holding all of this power. In their hands, they're basically holding an entire country hostage. Like, I was just listening to something the other day that the majority of Americans really do want gun control. They want gun control reform. Most of us, even a lot of Republicans. But if we can't end the filibuster because Manchin and Cinema won't get on board, then it's not going to happen. Like, so we have this power, kind of, but what do we do about it? when we have those sorts of roadblocks from our own people, quote unquote. Yeah. Well, yeah. Our own people, our own people are a treat. No question. I don't know (laughs) if I would call myself people with the Democrats. I'm back to being registered as a Democrat, but (laughs) that's what I got. Yeah. I I don't, it's not quick and -hmm. it's not easy, but we will move more in the first two years of this administration than would have actually been possible prior to this last election. Mm -hmm. I mean, literally impossible. I don't know if if Bernie had won. I don't know that he could have done this. Yeah. It, it required a shift in power so that the progressive edge of the Democratic Party is actually towing the party further to the left. And that's what needs to happen. But it's going to come down to the next election. It's going to come down mm-hmm. to changing the Senate. It's going to come down to the election after that, holding the presidency. I mean, it's a, it's a long-term fight. What I like about what happened last is that we moved more people into the conversation than has ever happened in terms of voting. But I think it's bigger than that. I think a lot of the the insecurity, misery, and suffering that led to people voting for Donald Trump has um, has contributed to this wave of, of being open to much bolder ideas. And, mm-hmm. and the conversation about how we solve the problems we have literally would have been impossible even four years ago, certainly eight you know, it's it's about the momentum that you build and how much you can keep it going and how big a tent you can build by saying the truth, not not like distracting people so they vote your way once because you can't hold those wins. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We'll be able to hold what we win now. And remember, no matter the left, we are so good. I feel like I'm yelling at people every day at work about this. We're so good at talking about what's imperfect. And it is. And, and I don't mean like mildly imperfect. I mean, we're going to make sweeping changes that will have absolutely the same racial disparities as everything else. We're going to pass bold things that are not going to take care of women the way that they need to. We're not going to fix housing and people are becoming homeless in waves in my, like waves in my town. Mm -hmm. So it's not that the imperfections don't matter. It's that we have to be able to point to after everything people did after the fight that we just had in this election, they won something that they're going to feel. You know, the things that have already passed are going to make a difference in people's lives right now. And we have to celebrate that because we're not done. And they have to be ready to get up and go out and do it again so that we can win the next thing. I think Mm -hmm. if you look at it like that, it's a little easier. Yeah. Yeah. When you when you talk about that big 10 and like who you bring in, I think that's something I really wanted to ask you about in your your just experience and expertise in organizing is when you are creating that big tent and the pressure to make compromises. And because we've just come off learning about women's suffrage, I'm thinking about the ways that Stan and Anthony made deals with the devil. And, you know, we're willing to, in order to expand their tent at, at the very least, like look 
to the other side when when white supremacists were like, we'll throw in because we want to try to beat down black voters. And they didn't, you know, at the very least, like didn't say no and mm-hmm. more. I mean, we this is part of what I think we've been really trying to investigate. So can you talk to us about the when you are building a coalition and when you are trying to bring people together under a bigger tent, how you watch out for those kinds of compromises and how you don't fall prey to them, those kinds of compromises that like sell out other people in order to bring, you know, X, Y, or Z in. Yeah. I wish I could tell you that I don't fall prey to them. I wish I could mm-hmm. tell you that people's action doesn't fall prey to them. I mean, happily, we're not so far into the room where the decision's being made that we're going to be the ones who say it's fine to leave behind people who will not be able to pay the incredible debt that they've accumulated, not being able to make rent payments. You know, Mm. what we do is we win as much as we can and we never don't say that it isn't enough. Mm -hmm. And it's, it sounds like I'm threading a really fine needle here, but Mm -hmm. um, there is something categorically different about what happened cutting a deal to sell out black people in order to secure the vote for white women. I think what maybe they didn't understand at the time, I don't know. I'm, you know, obviously haven't been able to ask. My guess is that they were not paying attention to what was really going on, which was the political calculation is that white women will vote the way that white men tell them and it will secure the current status quo. Mm -hmm. And so it was a fake victory. Mm -hmm. And you can tell because Look at how much time has passed and look at how little has changed in terms of the inequality around women and gender in general. Mm-hmm. It's, it hasn't, it, it didn't make the dent that it should have. Yeah. So I think it's not just, it's avoiding deciding you're going to just make a racist choice and sell out people, but it's also, it's easier not to do that if you really look at what is the calculation. If you think, oh, I, we can win and then we'll go back and get them later. That's cute. But you got to ask yourself, why are they letting this go? <laughs> why is it that they think that it's OK for us to vote? Why isn't that more of a threat than it is? It's because white women as a voting block were assumed to be an extension of their husbands. And to a great degree, that's yeah. kind of what happened. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't say it's like that now, but. I don't know. I, in some cases, it's hard to say. in some cases, <laughs> in some I mean, cases. like I think at the time it was mostly that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and now I'd say it's a little bit different, but it's you gotta. We we are not going to be powerful enough for a while to win one hundred percent of what people need. Our job is to win as much as we possibly can, and to never stop pushing for it to be more. So I don't know quite how to make an easy distinction between not doing a crazy racist thing. But I can say that if you are really um, just religiously committed to looking at what the power dynamics are, it's pretty easy to spot things like, huh, why would they be willing to go (laughs) to support women's suffrage? These KKK guys who don't think anything of women. Hmm. (laughs) It's it's a little easier to decide what it's worth my thinking because it's more. Yeah. 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 Hmm. So I think one of the things we were interested in, I looked and there's lots of campaigns that um, people's action is involved in, but given that we have been talking about the voting and that there's so much going on with voter suppression right now, where would you point people to looking at things they can get involved with to fight against some of these laws? I was just checking to see if I had an answer for you. I actually don't. I, I'm trying to figure out which organizations are sort of leading the charge in terms of fighting the 
voter suppression laws rolling out across the country. And we're still trying to figure out what our role is and should be in that fight. Um, that's the downside of being a multi-issue organization. There are no shortage of issues. Of, <laughs> and the question mm-hmm. of do we work deeply on a smaller set or broadly on a bigger set is, is still a little up in the air. What I will say is that volunteer program that we built for the election is still in place. That okay. We didn't just do, you know, turn out to vote for conversations. We did what we call deep canvassing, which is really like really talking deeply with people about what's happening in their lives and helping them to make the connection between how they show up, for instance, in the election, how that actually relates to what they need changed. You know, if you're struggling economically, it was talking about here are the opportunities that we see if we can change this administration for real economic development. So we're going to use that program somehow <laughs> that's a still in play, but uh, to actually work with voters on um, on the voter suppression laws that are happening. So we will be reaching out if people are interested in volunteering with the program. It's amazing. It's all about leadership development. So you won't just show up for a film bank shift. You can show up and learn how to do it and eventually run them and and bring in people and bring us the ideas that that you want to talk to people about. So they should reach out to People's Action. But can you talk a little bit about why that is such a good use of people's time? Because I think sometimes people are like, well, will that even make a difference? Like if I volunteer here, if I send money there, like they're trying to figure out where to get the most bang for their buck, whether it's figurative or literary. What do I want to say? Literally. Literally. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I was like literature, (laughs) something that starts with the word lit. Um, Yeah. Like why, why is that a good use of people's time? I don't know if this works for everybody, but I don't do well feeling helpless when bad things are happening. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's um, bad things are hard. I mean, you know, that, yeah. that, no matter where you work or how you spend your time, bad things are hard. Watching Donald Trump fake like he was the president was excruciating and watching the consequences of that was excruciating. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine how much worse it would be if I didn't have a job where I at least get to go every day and fight back. So if people are looking for a good bang for their buck, I mean, we'll, we will absolutely take contributions and we will use them well and we will do powerful things with them. But when I say, you know, connect with the volunteer team, that's not just, an, a, a, you know, you will be asked to give money. We all give money, mm-hmm. but you get to actually have some agency. It's not just a show up and, and read the script we give you. It's show up and help us continue to build this program together. It's show up and do it a few times and then teach other people how to do it and then help us write the script and then write your own script. So it, it is not just a way you can spend four hours on a shift, though that is okay. Mm-hmm. But if you want more, if you're looking for a way to feel like whatever happens in the world, I'm not just sitting here watching it on TV. I'm mm-hmm. actually connected and, and a part of really fighting for what I believe is right for our country. That's what we offer. That sounds perfect to me. <laughs> I know. It's up. also really super fun. Are you, yeah. are you active in all of the states or if you're not, are there ways that people can start? Um, the volunteer program or? is all digital. So or oh, all virtual wow. or whatever okay. the kids are calling it these days. So <laughs> you can participate from anywhere. It's, it's, I think I, I would be more excited if it, if you happen to be in a state where we also have member organizations, we're, we're in 30 states. We're not everywhere yet, but okay. um, in those cases, then, you know, Katie will appreciate this, that you don't just get to connect with people's action, but you can connect with CCI, with CCI, Iowa Citizens for Community Improvement Action, and mm-hmm. engage locally in the same way that you're engaging nationally. And as mm-hmm. things begin to open up, you can 
you know, go to the office and do things and become a part of that team and help them build. So there, there are endless opportunities to not, well, I mean, again, I don't want to belittle it. If you only want to give and it's what you can do right now, please do that. But, <laughs> but if what you're craving and what you're searching for is someplace where you find a political home and have some agency in trying to make the change that you believe in, we can provide that too. I think it, I, one of my favorite, one of my favorite things, gosh, that sounds terrible <laughs> given what I'm going to say. Probably my only Uh-oh. favorite thing about coronavirus. Oh, my, only, <laughs> my only my favorite, favorite thing, thing about coronavirus <laughs> is just, I think the, I, I feel like the digital connection that we have had to make out of necessity has actually lent a lot of power to some of these processes we're trying to do because it's like where you could not, maybe some people don't have the time to go to an office or do, but we can jump on a computer for an hour. Your kids can still be at home doing whatever. And you can say, I'm going to be in the office on the computer for a little bit doing something. I think that that has given people a lot more options. So I'm excited to know that that is an option through people's action. I think a lot of people would be likely to look into that. Absolutely. I think, well, it, I think you're totally right. It also just, it, it's also made people more engaged. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact of Donald Trump certainly politicized a lot of people without question. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that it was the combination of him and the coronavirus and like the need to be listening to news and hearing things just to be able to figure out if grocery shopping is still a thing. You know? <laughs> uh, just, just like basic ability to survive required being more plugged in. And I think that's mm-hmm. the change I hope we can hold on to that. And yeah, really figuring out how to use these amazing tools that I just didn't pay attention to because I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm wondering, I know that broadband access is still a really big problem in yeah. rural areas, but when I think about the accessibility to events and organizing, that was really hard for people who weren't in urban yes. centers or even like more conservative areas that maybe mm-hmm. they feel like they're the only person who cares about racial justice in their whole town, that they can connect and feel, feel that community. So I don't know what's been your take in terms of like rural connection to this and rural organizing, especially knowing that um, there are a lot of white people in rural areas. And, <laughs> and what have you seen around that? Well, we, I mean, we do a, a, a fair amount. A big, a big part of our program is rural organizing, which is multiracial, but you know, you're right. It's, I, I actually think it's a combination of there are a lot of white people in rural areas and there also is a lot of segregation in rural areas. Yes. So yes. you actually have a lot of black rural areas, a lot of Latino rural areas, and a lot of white rural areas that don't intersect as much as we would like them to, but probably intersect more than people imagine. Um, it is hard. The broadband access question is huge. And I would say that it It's also become really apparent in a way that may not have happened without this, the lovely coronavirus that Mandy's so fond of. (laughs) (laughs) It's just so wonderful. It it exposed the extent to which it's, it's also about like the access um, is determined not as much by rural and urban as by profit and, and opportunity based Um, on the company's assessment of where it should be. So you saw, I don't even know how many inner city kids who couldn't be online for Mm -hmm. school in in the Los Angeles area where I live. I mean, there's an uneven broadband access and I swear it's not because it's rural, (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah. but it's because there just hasn't been the political will to make an investment. Mm -hmm. So hopefully that will show up, not hopefully, we will make sure it shows up in the agenda around infrastructure because it's not just about 
I think people imagine that rural communities have less access because they're rural. And that's not true. It's because there hasn't been investment to make sure that they had access to what is obviously now a critical and should be public and available to everybody service. Which is a cool way for people to connect because they have this common issue. I think that's what you're pointing to. Like there's a point for solidarity right there. Both of yep. those communities are suit have because of capitalism's disinvestment, underinvestment, and that's a way to stay connected and link with each other and be in a fight together. Absolutely. Um, I don't Absolutely. know. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't expect you to have any insights into this, but like, why, <laughs> especially for wealthy white cis straight women, why that is so hard to see those connections? I don't know if it's like I say we because that's how many did I identify, but I, like being so power adjacent. Like the fear of leaving behind, like, I think that that fear often overrides your, the logical, I mean, truly just look at the facts. Like you have so much more to gain if you throw your lot in with all these other people, like let go, let go of white patriarchal (laughs) capitalist supremacy. Like we will catch you. You know, I I just, I don't know what that is, but is that when you're looking at, at organizing and trying to get people to really buy in. Have you found that to be hard for this subset of people or is it just hard for everyone? I don't know. Maybe we're just like, especially hard on white women, but I think that's fair. <laughs> I'm not, as I said, I don't, it's, I want to not seem like a jerk because I'm not a white woman, but, um, but I, I'm down to be hard on white women, but I will say this, <laughs> that never, it's sort of like the, the way it feels frustrating to win something and then have it, have it reversed. There is a force fighting back and the things that are in place to, you know, it's like there's a there there's a fight for policies and for structural change that will make people's lives better. But the other fight and the maybe the not maybe definitely the harder one is the fight for making meaning. It's like a cultural fight. Mm. It's a it's mm. a fight that is harder because it's not a tangible. If you win this policy, X, Y and Z change will happen. It's how we make meaning of it. And there are so many things in life that reinforce um um, making meaning of what's happening in a way that that says the status quo is right, or the status quo is the only thing possible. Mm-hmm. So yeah. my favorite yeah. thing about the coronavirus is that it, it broke <laughs> a lot of that down. You know, <laughs> I, you yeah. just have to know. Do you like watching the white people who took to the streets after George Floyd was killed mm-hmm. in places in rural places that yeah. have absolute? I mean. I live in a place where, where people have the access to information about what's happening. They have lived experience to reinforce it, to watch people take to the streets in communities that had very few or no black people um, hmm. who, who could be the people coming to the streets who have never really interacted with black folks, don't know anything about it. But because at its core, it's what they saw was so vile and so wrong that they were called mm-hmm. to do that. Like the courage that that takes is um, I think it's a miracle. It's it's like one of the most beautiful things that happens in our world is when people who don't have all of the textbooks and don't have all of the you know podcasts and whatever to tell them that there's something they can do and they do it anyway because it's just morally right. what they are called to do. So I don't know. I think I try to focus more on that than when people don't, because there's every reason in the world not to. You really do risk everything. And you have no sense, I think, for me, when I'm isolated, when I think about what am I willing to do to stand up for trans folks, mm-hmm. I, I am risking a lot. And if I'm not in community with other people who think the way that I do, I'm pretty isolated. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to know, one, 
what it will cost me, but two, what would I even do? Mm-hmm. Why would it even matter? You know? mm-hmm. Our job is to make sure that as many people as possible have a place to show up if they are called to to be a part of this. And I think one of the phrases that, you know, we've heard so much over the past year and plus is when will we get back to normal? When will things go back to normal? And my hope is that it doesn't go back to normal. Like if we have taken anything of this pause of this, what's been taken away has given us this brief moment to see something in a different way. I hope that doesn't change. I feel like I can't, look at things differently anymore. Like it's a permanent perception shift that Mm -hmm. I think we have to take out of all of this horror and disaster Mm -hmm. of the last year that I, I hope that other people feel the same way and that we can really Mm -hmm. still keep this going to keep building the power um, and keep mobilizing and make a difference. I hope so too. Cause it's, they say that once you find Waldo in the where's Waldo, you can never unsee him again. That's, that's, right. Yeah, that's right. I don't think anyone has compared the coronavirus to Waldo, but now that you've done that, Perfect. I'm not going to be able to look at a where's Waldo look at the same ever again. I, I love it. Oh, Brie, thank you so much. You've given us just, I, I haven't felt this inspired and lifted and energized in a really long time. And I'm so grateful. It's clear that you are really good at what you do. I think you just organized us. Maybe yeah. that was your ploy. I was so like, <laughs> grab these two ladies, get them hooked up. I truly just thank you so much. And I, I have no doubt that our listeners are going to feel the same way. We are yeah. just yeah. incredibly lucky and thank you. Yeah. Thank and we will put links to people's actions so that people can thank get you. on there and look for ways to get involved. Cause I know people want to, I mean, I do, so yeah. I'm going to be yeah. on there. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> and please yeah. let us know if we can bring anything else up, you know, other issues we yeah, would love absolutely. to, and we'll have let you back on anytime. That's what I was going to say. If it didn't work, bring me back. I would love to. It's a lot of fun. Oh my yeah. gosh. It'd be amazing. We, yeah, we have, um, our previous episode was Kate Schatz who wrote, um, Rad Women A to Z and is involved in lots of things. And Very so cool. she's going to come on and, um, every once in a while teach us about like a badass white woman who we should aspire to be more like, um, yeah. we need to take a break every once in a while from focusing on all the awfulness. And so, she, <laughs> and you know, give people Preach. model, like you said, help people imagine what something different could even look like. So I kind of like the idea of like you coming on to be like okay we need this is happening this is a campaign this is how people can get involved um yeah. so keep us posted absolutely to. yay i would love to and i'll tell you stories about great white women too oh, okay. <laughs> okay great okay, we'll take great care. white women it sounds like the great white whale that you're not sure if it exists <laughs> it does a little bit i know <laughs> well thank oh, you thanks so, thank much, you so much have a great have day, a great day. <laughs>